It's such a pleasure to be with you. We are in week three of our growing series, uh, a series that I think will be catalytic for us as a church. Uh, So what I want to do is I want to give kind of a quick recap of the weeks. In week one, Pastor Chris emphasized the crucial role that health plays in growth. So he had this kind of like uh, animatonically incorrect, I guess, but like body that had all the parts in it, you know, like from junior high, you could take the spleen out and the brain out and stuff. Um, And it was to emphasize that healthy growth is usually integrated growth. You need community. You need parts to be working together. If, If one part isn't working right, the whole thing isn't working right. And so as we grow, we need to do so as a unit. And then last week, Pastor Jason reminded us of the the spiritual value of committing to the Sunday gathering of the people of God. Here at Emmanuel, we call that big church. When we gather as the people of God in a large group, we serve the community and God himself by acting as a gathering and a gateway. We are a gathering that connects people to people and invites strangers into the family. And the people of God historically have always existed as a gathering point or a city on a hill that shines God's glory out to everyone. Where everyone has a seat at the table, whether fugitive or, or, or innocent, whether you are a refugee or a citizen, whether you are on the outskirts of society or in the mainstream, there is a seat for you. At God's table. And the people of God have always been called to be a gateway that welcomes people into the life of God. Then last week, Pastor Jason sort of left us on a cliffhanger where he said, uh, Big church is great. It's really, really important. And it's not enough. His point was that in order for us to value community in its truest and most transformational sense, we must not only grow big, but we also must grow small. And today, I hope to explain and kind of Uh, talk about and consider what growing small could look like for us at Emmanuel. You with me? All right, some yeps. I like that. Okay, Minnesotans. Um, Mother Teresa once said this, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. We live in a society that I think prides ourselves on connection. We are more connected, arguably, than ever before in the history of the world. With the rise of social media and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are more connected to what is going on in our lives every single day in the lives of others. But the danger in that, the intrinsic and visceral danger, is that we begin to miss, to confuse connection with real relationship. There's been lots of studies being done in rise with the, the, the rise of technology in conjunction with the rise of depression rates, specifically in the West. One of the leading voices on this is a woman by the name of Sherry Turkle, a social scientist out of MIT. And she wrote a book called Alone Together. And if you're looking for a book that's going to make you like become a Luddite and totally depressed about where our society is at, this is the book for you. I highly encourage it. But she says this, we are, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. We would rather text than talk. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. See what I mean? She's an excellent writer and she has a lot of value to to give us as, as our society becomes more and more dependent on connection over community. And if you're taking notes today, I encourage you to write this down. The first point I want to point you towards today is this. Connectivity is not the same thing as community. I think one of the things that the church in the West specifically has has a 
has a lot of trouble with is we imagine the Sunday gathering, this gathering here, to be our primary source of community. And at the beginning of the sermon, I want to argue that it's not designed to do that. This, this gathering is awesome for connections. It's awesome for meeting new people and new faces and shaking new hands and getting donuts and, and, and quickly getting to know a little bit about people's lives. But it is not designed for intentional, deep, transformational relationship. And part of the problem with, I think, the American church is that all of our expectations have been put on this one day with two hours once a week. Big church is not the same thing as deep intentional community. It's, in, it's crucial. It's essential to the life of a believer. And it's not everything. So in response to this, th- this idea that, that in our community, I would imagine that in our community, but also in our uh, society at large, there is this ache for belonging. There's this ache of loneliness. And we look to cover it up. Many of us look to cover it up with social media. Many of us look to cover it up with two hours once a week. But I'm here to tell you, I believe that there is something more. And so to, to kind of dig into what the something more could be, let's together study the way of Jesus to find, hopefully, a better way. Still with me? All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, if you're here today and you do not have a Bible or own a Bible, we have them to my left and in the back. Please take them. We love when people take our Bibles. Um, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, he being Jesus... Uh, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets right there and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So I have a question that I'd love for you to respond to. Did Jesus have just one disciple? No, right? He did, he did not have just one disciple. He was set into the context of community. And the interesting thing about this story is this happens right after Jesus comes out of temptation in the desert for 40 days by himself. After he has created or after he's made his inaugural uh, sermon where he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then immediately after that, he does not do a healing. He does not have a sermon. He doesn't even tell a story. He sets himself directly in the context of intentional relational community. Because out of that context is where he would do the majority, if not all of, his ministry. Now, the thing about this uh, text right here is the four guys that we meet, um, Peter and Andrew, James and John, these are like four great Torah-observing Jewish boys. Like, these are the boys you want your daughters to marry, like, looking good. But Jesus' community was a bit more diverse than these four boys. If you have your Bibles, again, turn with me to to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can we just agree that Jesus is like 
awesome here. <laughs> like, I just wish so bad I had those one-liners. It was like, oh, so cool. Um, Matthew, if you know anything about tax collectors in the first century Jewish uh, sect, they were, um, they were not very popular. They were kind of the traitors of their day, the Benedict Arnolds of the, their day. They were working on behalf of the Roman Empire and taking more of their share of taxes from the Jewish people, even though they were Jews themselves. Not very popular among Jews. And Jesus is seated here calling one of them into his closest inner community. And then he goes to some house somewhere and he has dinner with them and sinners. Now, sinners is a, is a moniker for um, any non-Torah observing Jews. So these are like kind of lax Jews. And Jesus is seated with all of these. And Pharisees, in this context, are kind of uptight religious folk come in and they're like, yo, what, Jesus, why are you sitting at the table with these people. And he comes back with this like awesome upside down nature of the kingdom of God where he says, sinners and tax collectors get a seat at my table. It's not going to be what you expect. It's a new thing. which is really, really powerful. Um, but if you can believe it, Jesus' community, including Matthew, gets even more diverse. Turn with me one page to the right to chapter 10, starting in verse 2. These are the names of the apostles. Okay, pause right there. Jesus had more... Jesus had prob- not just 12 disciples. He had probably hundreds, if not thousands of disciples, but he only had 12 apostles. These apostles were the ones who were going to carry on his ministry of making disciples after he left. These, this, these are his closest guys, his inner community, his small church, if you will. These are their names. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These guys we already met. Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, of all of these 12 guys, two of them get titles next to their name. One of them is Matthew, the tax collector, who we already know. And two is Simon, the zealot. Now, zealots were a violent, insurgent Jewish sect that used guerrilla tactics in the first century. The, the Hebrew name for zealot is Sicaria. There was a movie with Emily Blunt like last year named Sicario. It's based off of this. Sicaria in Hebrew means daggermen because they would hide in the midst of a crowd with a dagger stashed away and they would jump out, kill a Roman soldier and jump back into the crowd and disappear. These guys were uh, purists. They were radical and they were violent, but their goal was to keep the Jewish religion safe from oppression and to overthrow their oppressors and to kind of create a Jewish nation again. Now imagine that Simon Matthew is profiting off the, the oppression of his Jewish followers. And he's doing so in a way that makes him rich. It makes everyone else poor. And he's in the same Bible study group as Simon. (laughs) What does it mean to you, Simon? Oh, I don't know. What does it mean to you, Matthew? Do you think they got along all the time? Probably not. Do you think politics ever came up? Do you think it went well? No, right? And not only that, but, but Jesus' community, it goes beyond the, the dynamics of sociopolitical uh, essence. It, it goes into personality differences, right? Because you have Peter, who's like this type A in your face, ready to cut a guy's ear off if the situation arises. And then James and John, who are kind of in the same sphere. At one point, they're with Jesus, and they, this whole city is like walking away from Jesus. And they're like call down fire from heaven and burn the city to the ground. And Jesus is like, I feel like you forgot the Sermon on the Mount, bro. Okay, probably didn't say bro, but Jesus wouldn't say bro. But then, I mean, you have Timothy, who's like this kind of shy, introspective blogger, confused about his feelings thing. And Judas, this cold, calculated, vainly ambitious. I mean, there, there are 
vast different personalities in, in the midst of Jesus's closest community. And, and my point is that I think for many of us, we imagine Jesus's community as being totally ideal. These guys from different backgrounds, from different perspectives, coming together to learn from the way of Jesus. And everything's just like cool and peaceful, super happy. They're feeding 5,000 people and going by a fireside. But the truth is, is they probably ran into some really difficult social issues. And I think for many of us, we kind of idealize community. I'm going to get people who think just like me. They're going to love the same things that I do. We're going to jump into it and we're going to go together and there's going to be zero conflict and politics will never come up and there will be no division. And then we actually get into community and it's really messy and it's hard and it takes effort and it takes commitment where like our 21st century way of dealing with conflict is like Facebook, like unfriend you, bye, you know? And so... The point that I'm trying to get at here is there's, a, a, there's just a quote at the top of your page. If you're taking notes, it's not a fill-in. It's just a quote. It says this. In between the ideal of community and the messy reality of community is the space where discipleship happens and transformation is fostered. That, it's, it's right there. It's in between the ideal of community at its absolute best and the messy reality of community. Right in the middle is where discipleship and transformation happen. We see this in the early church, too. Last week, Pastor Jason read from us the famous passage of, of chapter, um, chapter 2, where the, the followers of Jesus are committed to the apostles' teaching, and they're sharing bread, and they're selling their possessions so that everyone can be taken care of, and, and people are added to their numbers day by day. It's like this perfect image of the church. And then we read two chapters later, and we meet a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Ananias had a plot of land, which he then sold, and he made money off of it. Good for him. Uh, but then he comes to the fellowship and he gives uh, to the apostles, he gives his tithe and he says, this is all of the money that I got from selling this land. But it was actually only a portion of the money that he got from the land. And Peter knows this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or something. Um, and he calls him out and he said, Ananias, you have lied not to us, but to God. And upon hearing it, Ananias fell down dead and later his wife came in, said the same thing, and she fell down dead. I sometimes just wish our church was more like the first century church, you know? <laughs> just sometimes. But what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is, is community is messy. But community is totally worthwhile because it is in that same context that the gospel spread under severe persecution and people came in droves to the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ and God our Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in that context. So my point here is, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Community is non-optional in discipleship to Jesus. Why is it non-optional? Because Jesus did it. If ever there was a guy who could sustain himself on his own ministry and his own power with nobody helping, it would have been Jesus. I have to believe that. And he doesn't do that. He sets himself directly in the context of relational, intimate community and does all of his ministry out of that. Community that is both real and messy is the context where we are formed as individual people and the followers of Jesus. Community that allows for access, vulnerability, and encouragement is part of the makeup of a well-lived life, period. Whether you're following Jesus or not, you need people to be a fully developing person. But Jesus, being the author of life, 
knew this fact intimately well. And that is why he did not pass his mantle on to a singular prophet, but instead equipped a community built on relationship and intimacy to carry on the mission of making more disciples. There's a, there's a man by the name of Jean Veyer, who is a Canadian Catholic philosopher, theologian, humanitarian. He created this community called La Arche in France in 1964. And I think there are like 34 of these uh, across the, the world now. And they exist to um, help out develop people who have developmental disabilities. And the people who c- come with disabilities are, are in community, living in community with people, their caretakers. And they all kind of like take care of each other. Um, and... John Vare started this, and he still is one of the, the original one in France now. This is a guy who knows the ideal of community. That sounds beautiful, and how really, really difficult that would be. And this is what he has to say about it. Almost everyone finds their early days in community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel that they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at least the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves, and then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater their disenchantment. If people manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, that of realization and of true commitment. They no longer see members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth. I love that. And they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Now, one of the problems, I think, in in the Western church is that we imagine this being Sunday morning. And I know that I've already said it, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of push into it a little bit more. It's not designed to do that. The greater our idealization of, of transformational relationship in a two-hour window once a week, the greater our disenchantment will be when it doesn't happen. And, I, and I, have, I have friends that have walked away from the church because that has not happened for them on a Sunday morning. And so with the time that we have left together today, I'd like to discuss a way that we are thinking about as a community to address the ache, the pang of loneliness and belonging in our culture and in our community, I'm sure in this room even, and the way of Jesus together, in, in the ideal and the messy, what it could look like for us to grow towards something more beautiful. Still with me? So last week, Pastor Jason introduced the idea of small church. This is a name that we will be using a lot around here. Uh, this idea is how we are wanting to respond to the way of Jesus and our ache for community. This will be a primary way that we begin and continue making disciples in the context of disciples. At its core, this idea centers around four guiding principles that we call the four togethers. All of these principles are based on some of the habits exemplified in the life of Jesus and on the early church. These principles are wrapped up in a word connected to an action step. They they exist to foster and create space for intentional community around the way of Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. All of these exist to create space for intentional community around the way of Jesus. So in light of all I've said today, let's slow down and unpack these four togethers here. We'll start with one, food. Food is probably a very popular one because of today. Super Bowl, if you didn't know, which I didn't. We've established that. I don't know anything about sports. So, but go 
Uh, not Patriots, right? I'm not supposed to cheer for the Patriots. I just know that a lot of people don't. I don't know. Okay, moving on. Don't care. Anyways, um, food, eat together. Jesus was the indisputable master of harnessing the magic of food. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is a party animal. Like he is hopping from parties to parties, inviting himself to parties, teaching about how the kingdom of God works in real life in the context of parties. When Jesus wanted to explain, he, I mean, he, he did everything in the context of celebration. It all centered around food. In fact, when he wanted to explain the significance of his sacrifice on the cross and God's master rescue plan for the world, he did not do it in a lecture. He did not do it in a teaching. He did not do it through a healing. He did it by hosting a meal. He connected himself to our most primal habit. Our eating brings us together. Thanksgiving is a great example of this. I can't imagine Thanksgiving without the center point being food. And I guess football, but again, don't care. It slows us down. Eating. It opens avenues for conversation. It is a shared and necessary practice. Necessary in the sense that if we don't do it, we die. We have to eat. And Jesus put himself right in the middle of that. As if to say, if you don't have me, you die. Eating becomes a transcendent practice within Christian community because eating exists in the context of our gathering. And where we gather, Christ is in our midst. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, had a, in his book Life Together, uh, wrote this about the fellowship of the table. Ever since Jesus Christ sat at, sat at table with his disciples, the table fellowship of his community has been blessed by his presence. So even in our eating, be it a four-course meal, or a box of donuts. Christ is present. And wherever Christ is, transformation abounds. Number two, word, grow together. The goal of community-driven discipleship is transformation. The goal of discipleship is transformation. And at the heart of transformation means you fundamentally change. You cannot be transformed and remain the same at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Transformation It expects that you are growing, that you are changing, that you are molding. And we believe the best context for true, sustainable growth is within a Jesus-centered community. In small church, we are committed to growth because we take Jesus at his word when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. Let go of your preferences. Let go of your perspective and take them, take mine on instead. And and do so daily. Take up your cross daily. So on a regular basis, make it a habitual act that you are putting yourself behind and, and receiving the life of Jesus. In community, that happens best. Because in community, we discuss and we converse and we struggle with word, the words of God in order to live out the words of God in community. It is always easier to pick up your cross when you are doing it with a friend. A couple of guys, Christopher Smith and John Pattinson, wrote a book called Slow Church, where they encourage God's people to slow down long enough to practice his presence and to be with each other. And they have this to say, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. 
It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. And I love that picture of the crucible because it's in community, in in between the ideal and the messy that we are forged into the image of Jesus. Where we are formed into something like him. Number three, life. To be together. This one is probably the one that our culture in this society longs for the most and that our culture in this society pushes against the most. Because it actually means that we have to sit with like people that are different than us and like listen to them and be with them on a regular basis. Um, a few years ago, the Barna group, which is a, um, is a premier polling group in America that, that deals with Christianity and churches and stuff like that. They did a big study on discipleship in the U S where they, they had four categories and they asked this question, how do you prefer to conduct your discipleship with Jesus? And in the largest category by far was on my own. Prefer to do it on my own. Just me, Jesus, podcast, coffee shop, leave me alone. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is discipleship does not work that way. And I just like, I know I just ruined every introvert's day by saying that. (laughs) But it's true. Discipleship does not work that way. Jesus did not perform his ministry in the context of his own. There's certainly a place for silence and solitude for those to to get away and to be with Jesus. Absolutely. But transformation primarily occurs in the context of loving, intimate, missional relationships. In their book, The Relational Soul, Richard Plass and James Cofield have this to say about our relational makeup. At the core of our beings is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. We cannot exist without connection and communion with another. Now, just let me, speaking to the introverts in the room, I am an introvert. I'm like, I'm an INTJ, like 1% of the male population, like way introverted. And I need relationships. I need people to be able to have access to who I am and to be able to speak into me. And extroverts, you're not getting off the hook, okay? Because just because you have a lot of friends does not mean that you are in community. Just because you know a lot of names does not mean that you are living in transformational relationship. There is a difference. And the difference is the gap between connection and real community. But we are hardwired to be in relationship. Hardwired. One of the core reasons we are turning our attention to small church is because it intentionally creates space for you to sit down and look into the eyes of someone you may even disagree with and learn to love them and allow them to love you. Big Church struggles with that. Big Church is great for celebrations and baptisms and, and worshiping in a large context. It struggles with you slowing down long enough to look into someone's eyes and have them look back into you and do it long enough where it doesn't make you uncomfortable anymore. By intentionally and meaningfully doing life together, you are, listen to this, you are actively killing the monster of loneliness and feeding into the beauty of belonging. That is what you are doing when you live a life in community. Number four, impact. 
and impact we serve together. The call of Christ-centered community is absolutely not a call to exclusive groups that exist for themselves only. That has never been the call of the kingdom of God or the people of God. Because foundational to the character and nature of God is that he is remaking the world. And he is doing it with us. He is in the, uh, he is in the restoration business and we partner with him in his recreative process. When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said this to him. And I, being God, will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It was not, Abraham, I'm going to bring you in, man. And I'm just going to teach you everything about me. And I'm going to give you my law. And I'm going to teach you my way. And you're going to tell no one else about it. Our secret, dude. No, it was, I'm going to, God is using gathering and gateway language here. He's saying, Abraham, come to me, learn my ways, take upon on on yourself my law and and see the life that I have for my people and then go live it in such a way that other people will ask you questions about it. And, and, And be good to the foreigner in your land and bring them in and teach them your ways so that they might know my ways. The idea here is that The blessing that God gives to Abraham is meant to be a blessing to the world. God is using gathering and gateway language. The pattern of God's blessing always comes with the expectation that it will be shared. The blessing of God is never meant for just you and I individually, but it is meant for the world and you and I individually. Therefore, the foundation of, of small church, uh, of what we do as a, as a gathering, must include the understanding that while we eat together and grow together and be together, we do so in order to be a blessing to the world. I'll say it like this. If God is affecting us in community, then we should be affecting our communities for God. So as we close today, I would like to in- extend to you kind of a practical invitation. Two weeks from today, February 19th, during the 915 service, downstairs in Beachcomber Bay Room, we will be having an all-church informational meeting about small church. And in that meeting, I'll, I'll take you through all the details, how to get plugged in, if you want to be a host, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a participant, what it looks like in practice, kind of the philosophy behind it. We'll go through all of that. My invitation is for you to come. Um, but my invitation is twofold. Today, if you're here and you feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is for you. Listen up. Don't, no, don't turn, don't turn away. This is for you. This is hard for you, but, but this is for you. My invitation is for you to not ignore that today and to do something about it. And so I'd like to give you the opportunity to, in your, if you have your bulletins, could you just pull them out for me quick? And there, there's a, there's a connection card that I mentioned earlier. And at the bottom of that page, there's some, there's room for some notes, um, if you are interested in small church at all, please write your name and your email and say something like, I would like more information about small church, or I would like to talk to Brandon, or hey, I'll see you on February 19th, or I can't make it. Can, can I hear more about it some other way? Can you send me more information? Put something down that is a, a realistic action step for you, and then drop it in the mailbox. And I promise I will do my best to get back to you this week with some info. But the thing is, is this idea is incredibly countercultural. It will go against every fiber of your being because it will force you to slow down long enough to listen to someone long enough to know them. And that takes time. 
It takes genuine time. But I promise you, if you commit to it, it will change your life. And you will experience new levels of freedom and new levels of belonging and new levels of your discipleship to Jesus that you have not previously known. And it will be messy and it will be ideal. And so my last point today is is this. As much as I have encouraged you towards community, and and this is vitally important and countercultural and part of your discipleship to Jesus, small church is really, really important, and it's not enough. There's more for you outside of community as well. Next week, Pastor Chris will be here, and he will lead us through what it looks like for our families to go deeper in discipleship to Jesus, and then what it looks like for us to go alone in our discipleship to Jesus. Extroverts, it's coming. Saying, but it's going to be really good, and and I and I hope you come back and you um, you learn with us as we learn together. So my encouragement to you today is: as we grow big, as we continue to grow big as a church, may we not neglect to grow small. Pray with me, Jesus. Thank you for what you have done today, um, and now as we respond and just have a moment of silence and prayer and reflection. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work that only you can to convict us, to encourage us, to guide us, to lead us. God, give us um, hope beyond hope today and show us how we can plug into something deeper, something more transformational, foundational. God, come and have your way. We trust you and love you.